This is Olivia Berkman, and welcome to Balance Sheet. How do you get managers to start thinking and acting like business owners? In this episode, I interviewed Greg Milano, the founder and CEO of Fortuna Advisors. Greg is a recognized industry thought leader in strategic resource allocation and in creating an ownership culture, which we'll learn all about in this conversation. He's also the author of the book, Curing Corporate Short-Termism, Future Growth Versus Current Earnings. Greg and I discussed the obstacles to ownership culture, many of which are self-imposed, faulty management processes, incentives and compensation, and the problem with always measuring against last year. Here's the conversation. Hi, Greg. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Olivia. Thanks for having me on. Before we jump in, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and then uh, tell me about Fortuna? Sure. Uh, So I spent the beginning part of my career as an aerospace engineer, uh, then worked for years at a company called Stern Stewart, implementing EVA, economic value-added, then a stint in investment banking. And now, uh, 12 years ago, I founded Fortuna Advisors, a small strategy consulting firm. The topic that we're going to talk about today is short-termism. So for those who are not familiar with the term, or maybe they're familiar with it, but they're not exactly sure what it means or how it applies to them, maybe start kind of broadly. Sure. At its, at its core, short-termism is when a management team or an individual manager uh, focuses too much on current performance and not enough on long-term performance. And so, you know, that might lead them to take actions to underinvest in the future in order to produce great results today. But unfortunately, those underinvestments come back and haunt you later. Give me some real life examples of of this. Like, what does it actually look like in the workplace? Okay, imagine a, a company is trying to hit an earnings number to announce to their shareholders, and they're getting close to the end of the quarter, and they're not sure if they're gonna make it. And so they look around for things they can do to try and push them over the edge to make sure they can say they met consensus earnings. And sometimes the easiest things to cut are things like, you know, we'll just reduce our ad budget a little bit at the end of the quarter, or we'll squeeze a little bit on some of our R&D spending. Uh, maybe we'll push some training into next quarter, you know, those kinds of things. And, and all of those things uh, can help you hit your earnings target right now, but they come with a cost, right? If you cut your advertising a little bit, that might hurt sales next quarter or next year. Uh, you know, if you cut training a little bit, you know, maybe your employees won't, you know, be quite as good at what they do as they could have been. So, you know, these short-term actions seem like the right thing to do because, of course, you know, everybody wants to meet their earnings targets, but they don't think enough about the long-term implications, and that's that's really bad for the organization. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about long-term value. What do we mean? What what do you mean when you say that? Like, what's the kind of opposite end of the spectrum? Well, I mean, it all comes down to net present value. So it's not really just about the long term, but it's not just about the short term. It's really about both. And I always like to describe it by making the uh, reference to entrepreneur owners that have run companies that I've worked for. As much as anybody I've ever worked with, they want to drive current performance. You know, they would prefer having more profit to less profit, right? But they would never get there by cutting, you know, advertising and training and and R&D and stuff like that. And so, you know, their thinking is always about both the short term and the long term. They're never focused on one. They're driving current performance as much as possible and making often very big investments in the future all at the same time. 
just as a real world example, th you know, think of Amazon. You know, they finally show some accounting profits now, but for many years they had no accounting profits. They produced a lot of cash flow, and every year they were plowing all that back into the business, mostly into things that get expensed, you know, R&D and so forth. And so the accounting profits were getting hit, but it was only because they were investing so much in the future. Hmm. Now, just to take a step back, how has your understanding of short-termism evolved since the founding of, of the company? And why is it such an important area of focus for you? If I go way back in my, in my history, 20, 30 years, I was trying to teach people that it was important to earn a, a high return on capital. There were companies that were growing for growth's sake and they weren't earning enough of a return and they needed to, to emphasize, you know, cost efficiency and capital productivity and things like that more. And that was very important back then. Unfortunately, by now, many companies have gone the other way. They're so focused on percentage measures of margins and returns and so forth, and not investing enough in growth. And so what used to be, you know, focusing on profitability now is focusing on growth. And unfortunately, that growth gets very undermined by the short-termism that I've been describing. And so that's why I'm very focused on, on short-termism. We need, we always need a balance of sort of growth and return. And the pendulum used to be more toward growth. Now it's more toward return. We're just trying to get people into that happy medium where the, where the balance of the two is, is in, in the right place. I'm glad that you pointed this out because it's not a short-term versus long-term. It's, it's somewhere in the middle is kind of the mm -hmm. goal, right? So how can companies get closer to the middle? Like what are the steps that they should be taking, whether from a leadership management standpoint or the average employee standpoint? It's you know from both perspectives, from the sort of everywhere, at every level of the organization, whatever the sort of sphere of influence is, you have to always be thinking about productivity and growth. You know, some people have a role that's more about productivity and some people have a role that's more about growth. And the tension between them when they come together, let's say in the management of a business unit or something like that in a company, the, the tension has to be leaning, uh, the balance needs to be going the right way. And the, the general rule of thumb, you know, the more profitable you are, the higher returns you earn, the more valuable growth is. And the faster you're growing, the more valuable improvements and return are. And so, you know, when you look at a business, it kind of tells you what, you know, where the most valuable levers are just by studying, you know, where their current performance is. The other problem we find is in multi-business companies, very often the company decides, oh, we have to grow and they just tell everybody to grow or, oh, we have to get more efficient. They tell everybody to cut costs. But very often different business units within a company have different characteristics and business unit A is really profitable and should grow. Business unit B is not very profitable. They should slow down their growth and focus on improving profitability to earn the right to grow. And being sensitive to those differences across the different business units is very important. The insensitivity to those differences is a lot of the reason why big conglomerate businesses often underperform. So is it fair to say that this is more of an issue for public companies than private companies? It should be, although some private companies that have been around and you know where the entrepreneur is no longer involved and even the family might not be involved in running the business, uh, very often, more of the public company characteristics start to creep into the way the company is managed and this short-termism can still you know, manifest itself. But private companies that are still run by the, the entrepreneur, the founder, usually don't have this problem. They usually balance the short and long-term really well. That, that's why we, we describe what we do as creating an ownership culture. That's what we're trying to mimic. We're trying to get to that, 
that entrepreneur founders kind of mindset, you know, in everybody. Got it. Okay. So I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to talk about that term that I've heard you use in the past ownership culture. So you touched on it just now, but maybe define it for us and then tell us a little bit about the obstacles to ownership culture. There are many things that you could observe about ownership cultures, but but let me just name a few of them. One is they treat the, the capital of the company like as if it was their own money. You know, if they invest it poorly, they own it. They're accountable for it. If the performance of the company goes down, the value of the company goes down, the value of their personal wealth goes down. So they become tied to it and they start treating that money like it's their own money. The second characteristic is what we call extreme prioritization. When I've worked with founder owners, they really know that the 80-20 rule works. They know that most of the ideas out there are not gonna have much of an impact on the value of the company, but there are a few that have a really big impact. And they have the ability to see those and they have the ability to really focus on them and to not waste their time you know, focusing on too many things. And, and that's the extreme prioritization is really important. As I said before, they focus on the short and the long term. We, we need both. A very important owner manager characteristic is having a willingness to fail, a willingness to experiment and try things. And then if they don't work out, a willingness to fail. Very often in non-owner culture companies, if a project starts and it starts to look like it's not going well, nobody wants to admit they failed. And so they just keep funding it and funding it and funding it. And that's not very good. We have more willingness to try things, but then a willingness to say, well, this didn't work out. Let's stop and take the money and you know, re-divert it somewhere else. Uh, I've been saying for years, one of the greatest attributes of Silicon Valley and the whole venture capital uh, business is not the ability to fund great ideas. Of course, they can fund great ideas. But the, one of the best things is when something's not working out, it gets defunded and, and the money moves on. That doesn't happen inside a lot of large companies, but it definitely happens in the markets. And it's really a good attribute to try to build you know, into your company. The obstacles uh, to creating an ownership culture are many. Many of them are self-imposed. You know, This whole idea of measuring performance variances against the plan creates an obstacle to an ownership culture. You know, If I plan for 2% growth and I achieve 3% growth, I'm complimented and praised for, for having you know, overachieved my plan. If I plan for 10% growth and I only achieve 8% growth, I'm chastised for falling short of my plan. So knowing this, I'm gonna sandbag and plan as conservatively as I can. And that's not what owners do. Owners have a much brighter view of the future and they try and strive for aspirational goals and so forth. And one thing I've learned over time is that if you pay people to plan for mediocrity, pay, pay them to sandbag their budgets, they're probably not going to be top quartile performers. And so the whole system is set up to work at odds with creating this owner-like culture. And so we have to separate how we pay people from the planning and budgeting so that people can feel free to plan for a bright future. Hmm. I'm curious to know, like, what's Fortuna's involvement in short-termism? What role do you play? Tell us just a little bit more about that. Okay. So we we help companies with many facets of the, the sort of journey to try to embrace an ownership culture. It starts with an evaluation of performance, how that performance relates to value, some benchmarking to try and identify what would it take, what kind of performance, what kind of growth margins, investments would it take to produce a profile performance over the next three to five years that we would expect to lead to top quartile share price performance. And once we have a sense of where that is, we compare it to the company's plan and that gives us a sort of sense of the gap. How big is the 
is the is the is the the gap between the path we're on and the path we'd like to be on. At the same time, uh, doing a, a diagnostic of the management processes of the company to try to find out the shortcomings, you know, and where the behaviors are not being encouraged in the right direction, and also trying to get a sense of the culture where it is now, you know, the willingness to fail, some of the other things that we've talked about, and then trying to put together a roadmap of how over the next few years, can we educate people? Can we change some of our management processes? Can we change our incentives in order to try to steer the ship in a different direction and, and have people thinking much more like, like owners, you know, after they've really embraced all this. It takes time. It's not something that happens. You know, we can't change culture overnight, but having the, the sort of consistency of aiming in the right direction and starting to behave differently, like I said before, you know, if somebody plans for 10% growth and achieves 8%, they should get more recognition than if somebody plans for 2% and gets 3%. But in this world we live in where everybody measures variances to budget, that's really quite contradictory to the natural reactions that people have. It takes time to, to learn to behave differently and to act differently and how we interact with each other. But there's a massive payoff. I mean, the size of the prize is huge. But every part of that process from you know, the beginning diagnostics, the training and education, we're involved in, in all of that. So I understand what ownership culture looks like from a planning perspective, culturally. So within the company, peer to peer, does it look like something there? Does it look like something personally? Does that question make sense? Yeah, peer to peer. So imagine you had two heads of business units of a company and one of them, their team comes up with a great idea of how to better manage working capital. If they are exposed to the outcome of the total company, in addition maybe to their own performance, they're gonna have a really good incentive to share what they learned with the other business unit heads so that their people can do the same thing and they can improve working capital, right? Because we're kind of all in this together, we're like partners. In many companies, they create a, situa- create a situation where everybody wants to stand out from the crowd. And if you figure out something good, you have no incentive to share. You have a disincentive to share it with anybody. So. Sure. But it also happens when you think of think of the CEO of the company and the head of the business unit having a conversation. Let's say it's during the planning process and the CEO says, my people have come up with these three ideas that I think could improve the future of your business unit. Why don't you, you know, look at them and, and see if you can incorporate them in your plan? The knee-jerk reaction of the business unit head is to say, ooh, I don't know. I don't want to put that. I don't want to put those upside initiatives in my plan. It's just going to make my goal harder. And so they immediately come out with a laundry list of, of reasons why, oh, we can't do that and we can't do this. You haven't accounted for this problem. They don't understand my business and you know, so forth and so on. And that's an adversarial like negotiation kind of situation. If all we care about is up is good and down is bad, right? If we're measuring always against last year, we're not measuring variances anymore. We have a good enough measure that we can measure against last year. Then when the CEO asks, can you include these in your plan? The business unit head might or might not agree, but they have no disincentive to agree. And if they are good ideas, they'll put them in their plan because if they if they achieve them, they get paid for them. We're not raising the target anymore. The target is last year. You know, getting into an ownership culture creates much more of a partnership type feeling inside the organization where we're kind of all in this together. And and that can lead to uh, you know, much better decisions, much better performance, and and really much more transparent flow of information up and down the organization. Something that you said earlier um, that I meant to ask, you said the 80-20 rule, and I'm sure people listening are going to roll their eyes because they probably know exactly what that means, but I actually don't know what that means. So what is that referring to? Okay, so there's a, a, the Pareto principle is, uh, says that, like, well, to put it in this context, 20% of your initiatives will create 80% of the value. 
it's an attempt, it's an overgeneralization, but it's an attempt to try and focus you in on the things that really matter. You know, if you had 10 possible, you know, initiatives to try to improve the performance of the company, you know, this would say that two of those initiatives are going to account for 80% of the potential success, focusing your and your team's attention on those two initiatives that really matter and maybe dropping some of the other ones, delegating some of them to lower levels in the organization is the way to go to, to really try to make sure you get the most out of it. Got it. Thank you. Another question that I have for you is about investors. So <clears throat> can investors play a, a role in getting companies to embrace an ownership culture? Like where do they fit in? Well, the investors come in many types. There are investors that want to make a quick buck. They, they think something's undervalued and they come in and they want management to do a few things to sort of shake up the view. Hopefully the share price pops and they sell. And those investors, unfortunately, are very loud often. And, and so they, it's hard to totally ignore them. But there are also many investors now that think much longer term, that really care a lot about you know, how a company allocates capital. They want people to invest in the business and grow the business, make good R&D investments, make good acquisitions and so forth. And I think you know, investors can understand how the actions of management uh, affect that long-term value creation and try to influence management in the right way with their questions and, and, and so forth. Unfortunately, again, the loudest voices sometimes are the shortest term voices and it becomes a little hard as a management team to get past that. But, you know, I always say, go by what investors do, not what they say. If you study the markets, you'll find, you know, on average, when companies increase R&D, the share price goes up, not down. Even though the earnings are going to get hit by that R&D, the share price goes up. Overall, over time, the market behaves pretty long term. And if you take signals from that and use that to guide your your decisions inside the company, rather than just what you hear verbally from the investors, I think you're much better off. A lot of people who listen uh, have board seats. What are the considerations for those who are sitting on a board? Well, I guess if I were a board member listening to this, I would think, how closely does the management team I oversee behave this way? How much do they behave like an owner? Are they sort of playing the game of trying to get guidance to steer investors to have low expectations for consensus earnings so they can beat them? Or are they more focused on you know, making the right investments in the business? You know, we want them driving productivity in the near term. We want them driving cash flow in the near term, but we also want them making investments in the long term at the same time. In some companies that happens really well in some companies, there's a lot of lip service and nothing ever comes out of the R&D pipeline and, and, and so forth. As a board member, you have to really assess the sort of authenticity of the long term thinking and the ownership culture and, and decide if, you know, if that's something that you, you, know, you really think is going to help the company get in the right direction over the long term or not. Mm-hmm. The last thing that I want to ask you about is um, we're recording this on Earth Day, and I wanted to know, is there overlap with the ESG world here? I'm so glad you brought this up. This is really an important point. And two points I'll make on this. One is in collaboration with chief executives for corporate purpose. uh, Last year, we did a bunch of research using statistics on the purpose of various brands as stated by by consumers, uh, information gathered by a company called Barra Brand Management in collaboration with the Jim Stengel company. We took their data on brand purpose. They have this battery of questions to figure out what do people think of the purpose of this brand, that brand. 
we focused on what we call mono brand companies where the majority of revenue comes from a single brand, you know, like Delta Airlines is a mono brand company, for example. And then we related that to various measures of performance and valuation. And we found that the high purpose companies have meaningfully higher average returns on capital. They trade at meaningfully higher valuation multiples and they produce much higher total shareholder return in terms of share price appreciation and dividends. And so operating with good corporate purpose seems to lead to good results. And if I just, the second point I wanted to make on this is it kind of comes back to this long-term view. If all I care about is next quarter, I can do a lot of things that hurt my customers, that hurt my employees, that hurt the environment to produce a short-term pop in my financial results. But if I care about where I am three years from now or five years from now, I want my employees to feel really good about working here. I want my customers to become very happy, delighted, repeat customers. You know, I want to do good things for the environment so that, you know, people recognize that we're a good company, a company they should admire and want to do business with. And so taking this long-term view actually encourages you to care more about your stakeholders, to care more about ESG and so forth. And so I think it's a very symbiotic relationship between the different worlds, if you will. Thank you for really breaking this this area down for us. I appreciate all your, your thoughts and insight. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's been great. I love you. 